Welcome to the show, everybody. This was recorded April 21st. Finally getting some of the editing bottleneck taken care of. Getting these episodes cranked out faster. The world changes so quickly that, uh, you know, I want to make sure that you guys have context for all these episodes. Know when they were recorded, where we were coming from. So, this was April 21st. Return guest, Mark A. Smith. He's been on the podcast before so you can search back through for the first episode that he was on as well and enjoy today's episode are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. My name is Shane Moss. Today, I have return guest Mark Smith joining me today. Mark, why don't you introduce yourself to the good people? Sure. I'm a professor of political science at the University of Washington and also adjunct professor in comparative religion and communication. And I I study and teach on American domestic politics and then under that umbrella, a lot of things, um, how people think about politics, how government acts, um, religion most, most recently is what I've been focusing on. So um, glad to, to be with you today, Shane. So I, I, I myself in my personal life, I don't shy away from talking about politics, but on the podcast, we almost never talk politics. And I've been sitting here doing all of these pandemic edition episodes. And it's just, there's so many subjects that are occurring to me that I'm like, how are we not, how are we not talking about the insane political circus going on right now? And I've had so few, I think you're like, one of two or three political scientists that I've ever had on, on the show. You did stand-up science, and you were a terrific guest on Here We Are as well. So I reached out to you to, just to hear what your thoughts are. Am I, am I crazy for thinking that this is even more of a political cir- a circus than it was pre-pandemic? Or... Or am I just, is, is everything crazier or am, am I just getting myself more worked up than normal? What's going on out there from your point of view as someone who's officially a political science professor? Well, as you know, Shane, before the crisis hit, Americans were totally unified on the political <laughs> And now in the wake of the crisis, we're even more unified than we were before. We're and really uh, coming together. Yeah, you know, it's the United States of America, and this crisis really, really proves that. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting in that when, when new issues come along, the existing political alignments aren't in necessarily in place, and so people kind of have to settle in, like, well, exactly what side am I on? People generally know what side they're on, but they don't necessarily know what is my side supposed to think about this, this matter. Uh, and so if you go back to um, January, when we, we all you know, knew there was some kind of uh, you know, virus circulating and they had a, a lockdown in Wuhan. And, and uh, I mean, I don't know what you were thinking, but I was thinking like, all right, well, I remember SARS. You know, I remember MERS. I remember yeah. the H1N1. Uh, I remember Ebola. All of these 
sort of looked like things that could spiral out of control, but none of them did. And I guess I was maybe it's part of my nature or whatever. I, I was just an optimist and I thought, well, it's, it's probably not going to be a worldwide uh, pandemic. Uh, and so at first I didn't, I didn't really think that it was coming to our shores. Yeah, well, I have made a number of apologies <laughs> to uh, a lot of people who tried to warn me um, uh, about this because my uh, my um, bias was I actually thought that I was being pragmatic in because I I do not consider myself to be an optimistic uh, uh, an optimistic person in life generally, uh, but I have I have lived a, a lifetime of from my point of view, watching people um, freak out and overreact to every single thing. And, and, mm -hmm. um, and my point of view was that the news loves to focus on these like little, these few anomalies and, and really hype them up for, for ratings. Not, not any one particular news source, just every, everyone that wants some eyes on it you know you want to uh you want to get the attention grabbing stuff on there and and one one great way to do that is to scare the crap out of people so i dismissed all of this as just that early on and uh boy was i wrong i i i, I you know it's 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 made me uh it's made me question my own my own judgment and my ability to to perceive um uh, it, you know, take in what news is relevant and what isn't, and I, I don't know. It's it's given me a lot to, a lot to think about. Yeah, well, so there were. I mean, you were you were with most people. I, I wouldn't beat yourself too much over that. But beating um, myself up is my favorite thing to do. So don't make me beat myself up for beat. Or maybe I do want to beat myself up for beating myself up too much. Yeah, hard to know how that's going to shake out. But, <laughs> For a while, I mean, it, it was sort of being talked about, and there, there were a few, you know, epidemiologists who were saying, "Hey, this could be big," but it seemed like those were were minority voices. And and famously, our president um, very much minimized the threat, and he spent pretty much January and February saying, "Hey, it's no big deal," you know, China's got it under control. Um, and then once we finally did have some cases, you know, initially in, in my neck of the woods here nearby in uh, you know nursing home in, in Kirkland, Washington, he was saying, ah, you know, it's just a few cases, not, nothing's going to happen. And um, much of the, um, at, at that point, there, there wasn't kind of clear splits, like, you know, who was on what side. And because frankly, a lot of the um, more left leaning media were, were also not not anticipating a, a big threat right. at that point. But interestingly, there were a couple of, probably more than a couple, but at least a couple that I know of, of you know, right-wing, more um, nationalistic kind of voices who were saying, this is a big problem, it's gonna be big. Steve Bannon was one of those. Mike Cernovich was one of those. I don't know if you know uh, much about Cernovich, but he's kind of a right-wing, alt-right, conspiracy theorist mm. uh, type. He pushed the pizza gate. Um, story in, in, in 2016, if that gives you any, any context. Right. Some of the more nationalistic um, oriented conservatives who were like, uh, you know, close the borders, you know, need to do more for Americans, restrict immigration. Those kinds of people were more likely to be sounding the alarms early. Right. But Trump was saying no big deal. And then Fox News, because Trump and Fox News are, are closely coordinate with, with messages and, and, and strategy, Fox News tends to take Trump's lead and Trump also will take 
Fox News's lead, depending on what he saw that day on Fox and Friends and so on. And so the hell were, you say? <laughs> they were very much in sync of saying yeah. this is nothing, it's, it's, it's going to be no big deal. But then at some point, it became obvious that this really is spreading in, in America. And then it was the more left-leaning voices who got there first. Mm-hmm. But then a week or two later, Trump got there too. And he eventually, uh, I mean, his own White House is pretty much advising what we have now in terms of, of the policy response, the lockdowns, no social gatherings, um, closing non-essential businesses, all that that the governors are doing. The White House itself has put out guidance recommending those very same things so that, that um, Trump sort of caught up. But just in the last week or two, um, there, I mean, he, he did have that period where he was wanting to uh, say, hey, let's reopen the economy by, uh, by Easter. Easter. Yeah. Everything up, you know, up, up and raring to go. And that, that didn't, didn't fly so well. So then he kind of backed down. He didn't say a whole lot for the next week or two. And, and now he's doing this kind of interesting move where he's, um, on the one hand, still has the official guidance recommending essentially what we're doing, but then he's quietly encouraging, or maybe not so quietly, you know, through, through tweets, encouraging the, the protests going on uh, yeah. in various state capitals, uh, you know, started out in Michigan, but you've had him in Ohio, had him here in Washington, uh, Minnesota, Virginia, and some other states. He's, he's also encouraging those. So he's kind of like, I think right now he's throwing out a lot of uh, different messages and he's not quite sure, you know, what, what to go with. But as a result of this, the, the alignments there, they were kind of, initially there was no clear, um, clear alignment. So if it's an older issue, like it's abortion or it's guns or it's, it's you know, capital gains right. tax, we all know what all the positions are and people take their predictable positions and depending upon what side of the political spectrum you're on, we kind of know what you're going to say. Right. And so all those issues are, are frankly kind of boring because um, if you've been around a while, for a while and you're watching, it's, there's, there's just nothing new. It's the, the alignments are already locked in stone. Whereas with this, because it's a developing issue, we didn't have those alignments in place yet. Yeah, that's so I, I was kind of, uh, I, I've been a little bit, part of me has been a little bit surprised to see all of the tribalism, although I have to admit that I, I've, I've, felt myself feel the, the tribal, but like, I, I, I've never been uh, as committed to, uh, to promoting science. I've never been so against any, any organizations that seem anti-science to me. I've, I've been less empathetic toward those groups than, um, than in more in recent past. But it is right. funny because one, 9-11 did seem to unify people a fair amount um, mm-hmm. when, when there was like, oh, we haven't dealt with anything like, like this in our lifetime. And, and two, with a virus thing, it does, it, it, it does seem a little goofy to be like, what does my, what, what does my group think about that? It's, it's like, well, I'm a Packer fan. What are Packer fans saying about this virus? What, what are Packer fans for or against social distancing? It just seems odd to that that that's the uh, that any new situation that comes up, people go like, "Well, what does my political party have to say about this completely novel thing that's never happened before?" Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that raises a lot of challenges. And then on top of that, you get a lot of people, uh, whatever they've been pushing for the last few years, they sort of say, well, we need this now more than ever. 
So if you were, uh, you know, for uh, you know universal healthcare before, you're like, well, this just shows, you know, how yeah. people don't have universal healthcare. If you were a libertarian before, you said, well, I was really worried about government overreach. See, we got government overreach going on right, right If you're now. a science podcast, you're like, I tried to tell you guys science is very important. If you're a doomsday prepper, you're like, I told everyone they needed 80 years supply of, of toilet paper. Everyone's doing it. I told you so right now. The environmentalists are like, ah, oh, see, humans are bad. Mother nature was going to buck us off this planet at some point. This is yeah. this is mother nature exacting her revenge on us evil humans. <laughs> and it is, it, it's so funny that everyone's doing the I told you so game because yeah. no one predicted this shit. No one in the entire world would have predicted that halfway around the world someone was going to eat a bat that was going to put the world on lockdown. <laughs> Been saying it for 30 years. Got to watch out for that bat eating. <laughs> I mean, I, I might part company with you just on that particular point. And that there, there have been people talking about the potential for animal-based viruses making the jump to, to right. To, and there have been people warning about about pandemic potentials. And you know, we've had movies like Contagion, which now everybody's watching on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, Bill Gates gave a uh, now famous speech in 2015, warning of of a pandemic. And of course, the conspiracy theorists say. Well, he was—he's actually part of this because now he's funding some factories that are going to be making vaccines. And if you're anti-vax, you say, "Well, this was all part of the, uh, you know, plot to push more vaccines." And so they're, they're kind of this big uh, anti-Bill Gates conspiracy. Yeah. the now. conspiracy theorists are really having a, a field day right now. I and I, I love the I love seeing people's. Um, uh, 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 you know, because I, I do conspiracy theorists are interesting to me because I, I think that a lot of them are like very like naturally. Uh, I know a lot of conspiracy theorists that are like naturally intelligent people that just don't have like a formal education. And, and so they've never learned like correlation versus causation or like these like simple little things. And so, so then, then your mind goes, you know, where these pattern recognition um, animals and, and you go like, Oh wait, this virus started around this time. 5g towers went up around this time. <laughs> I think I'm seeing a correlation here. It's, it's, Verizon's causing this virus. Yeah, never mind that the virus is spreading places where there is no 5G being constructed. You know, so uh, it's it's probably spreading more because they don't they aren't getting the information <laughs> fast enough. Yeah, so there's that that information dynamic that's layered over over on top of this, where it seems like the vast majority of people are kind of um, going along with with the mainstream messages that. You know, the, there really is a virus. It really does kill people. It really does spread pretty quickly. There are ways to try to reduce the spread. I, I'd say that there's a lot of, you know, mainstream scientific consensus on, on those points. Most people seem to be on board with that. Um, but as you say, you've got, got plenty of these outliers. And the thing about our modern information environment is it doesn't take very long for a conspiracy theory to spread. And for those people to form their own online communities and for them to kind of get their message out there. Yeah, so, I mean, this is, this is, I mean, comedians, 
ten, there, there, there is a disproportionately high number of conspiracy theorists in the comedy community because there again, you have people that are like fairly naturally intelligent, but uh, again, no classic education, self, self-educated yeah. people, but then uh, uh, people that go against the grain, people that are anti-authority, and, yeah. and, and then a fondness for novel ideas. We, 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 we all like, um, you know, when a comedian can point out like a, a different idea that, that other people aren't noticing, that's something that's often very valuable to the, so, so there's also like this fun element of the conspiracies of like, oh, I figured out this thing that other people aren't aren't figuring out it must be lizard shape-shifting people like what a neat idea mm-hmm. and uh and, and so it, it's been it's been a little bit discouraging for me as someone with the science podcast seeing a bunch of uh the comedy community um some of them even my friends, my friends. um promoting, promoting um conspiracy theorists yeah that's an interesting phenomenon i mean it's one thing if they're doing it during a show because then, if you're in the audience, you never really know, does the community really believe this? Are they just having fun with it? But if they're doing it, you know, kind of on the side, you know, through Twitter or, or something else, like, mm-hmm. generally, you, you assume people believe the things that they say outside of a, of a formal performance. Yeah. 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 That's a- it's a bit troubling to me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, that's the information environment we are, we are, we are living in now. And so um, whatever you want to believe you, you can. And as we talked about before, whatever you used to believe, you can find ways to say, well, this just proves that I was right all along. Mm-hmm. And then we've got that layering over top of the, the, the political alignments. Um, and I think one thing that, 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 that is also happening here is that because of these political alignments, partly you decide what you're for by being against whatever the other side says. Mm-hmm. And I first noticed this in, uh, it must've been 2014. Um, no, it would have been earlier than that. Maybe even 2011 sorry, or 12. I think it was after the Republicans took control of the House of Representatives in 2010. And for a long time, there had been a lot of Republican senators, especially who were pushing for a deficit reduction commission. I know not a most high profile issue, but it was, you know, kind of been around for a long time. And so then Barack Obama says now he supports establishing this, this commission. And then once Obama said he supported it, all these Republican senators who used to support it, now they don't support it anymore. Mm-hmm. They're deciding what they're for by being against whatever Obama is for. I do the same thing with people wearing red hats. I, I, I have, <laughs> uh, you, you know, I, I, would, I would love... I would love to think of myself as an unbiased, unpartial um, individual, but um, you know, I, I just, I just can't rightly think that's the case. Uh, and and I, um, it, you know, I, I think when you talk about, you know, most of the mainstream kind of understands the threat of this um, of this virus. And then another thing is, most of the un- mainstream also has economic concerns and recognizes that we can't just not work forever and we need to start things up in some manner or another at some point to keep things going and and you know i i just because of the people that i've had on my podcast 
push for buying science and hospitals and healthcare as much time as possible to figure this out so that it doesn't get overwhelmed. But, um, you know, in considering, let's see, when should I book a show um, or whatever? Like, oh, maybe do I even try to, looks like things could start opening up after May in an optimistic um, schedule. Do I maybe try booking for June, knowing that I'll probably have to cancel? And then a bunch of guys in red hats start uh, start going out and protesting at City Hall. And I'm like, nope. I, whatever those guys are doing, I'm doing the opposite. <laughs> One of the splits that's, that's come up is, do you want to open sooner or, or later? And by opening up, I don't necessarily mean here like, you know, back to business as usual, but more of, can we leave our houses without, you know, being uh, shamed or, or possibly arrested, you know? Yeah. So, the opening up, whatever it happens, it's it's clearly going to be in stages. It seems like the last thing that'll come back is is big group events, you know, stadiums, festivals, you know, conventions. Uh, that'll be the last thing, and maybe the first thing is more businesses, and then maybe some restaurants and bars with with spacing, and then you know maybe houses of worship and so on. So there'll be it'll be stages. But do you want to speed that up, and do you want us to get there quicker, or do you want to slow it down? And, and, and keep, keep the lockdowns in place longer. And um, I think one of the things that happened is once Trump went out and said, we need to open up sooner, that then made the anti-Trumpists in the country, which is like, what, 57% of the country or something, uh, it made them want to say, well, if Trump's pushing to open up sooner, that must mean it's a bad idea. And so I therefore think we need to open up later. And, and I think this is an odd thing for people who are on the left, because those are people for whom, outside of, of the context of this particular crisis, um, for example, in the, in the field of public health, they have this thing that's known as the social determinants of health. So your health is not just, you know, genetics or, 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 or diet. It's what kind of community are you embedded in? Do you live near pollution sources? Um, are you part of social networks that encourage healthy habits or unhealthy habits? Do you, do you live near uh, supermarkets that have lots of fresh produce or are you in an area where it's harder to access uh, you know, for fresh produce, uh, so-called food, food deserts? So things, things like that are called the social determinants of health. That also includes, do you have a job? I mean, one of the biggest predictors of a person's health is, do you have a job, which then gives you health insurance. If you lose your job, you lose your health insurance. If you're part of the long-term unemployed, you're more likely to be uh, in the situation of drug and alcohol addiction. You're more likely to commit suicide and, and so on. And so what we call, quote, the economy can't be stripped from health because it affects people's health through all those means. It also affects people's health through government budgets. So um, a lot of health care is paid for by government budgets, especially for, for lower income people through Medicaid, paid, paid for by, by states. So if you crush the economy, then there's no revenues coming in, then state and local governments have to cut their budgets. They're going to need to cut things like Medicaid because that's a significant part of where their spending goes, which is the very health care that pays for people, not just for coronavirus, but for, for lots of other things. So stripped of the current context, 
people on the left, I think, would be really worried about an economic downturn, not just because it hurts the stock market or hurts business owners, but because it hurts ordinary people. And one of the things that hurts is their health. It increases their likelihood of death. Mm-hmm. So if, if it was not the current crisis, I think a lot of people on the left would be worried about that. But once Trump takes the position of we need to open up the economy sooner, then people on the left are like, well, if Trump is for this, I must be against it. And then they kind of forget about all these things they would normally be concerned about, people losing health insurance, government budgets being, being uh, hurt, having to cut Medicaid, higher, higher rates of suicide, drug and alcohol addiction, um, domestic abuse, child abuse, uh, and so on. And so um, there's this kind of weird de- debate going on on the left where um, people are talking about as if the only thing you might die from is coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And that you can't die from suicide, drug, alcohol, overdose, and you know not having access to health insurance, not 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 uh, having a community support. You know, think about all the effects of social isolation. Yeah, there's a lot of research showing that uh, social isolation um, has very severe health consequences. There's something like 25% of Americans who live alone. These are people for whom, if you tell them shelter in place. It's not like they have a family that they're with. They really are by themselves. And they normally need to be out doing things to, to be around people. So you're basically forcing isolation, which we know has very severe health effects. But it's, it's really hard to get people on the left to even talk about those because then they think, ah, oh, well, you must be wanting to open up the economy sooner, which means that's the same thing that Trump supported. And that's the very thing that we have to object to now. So I think this tribal mm-hmm. affiliation it makes it hard for people on the left to support things they would normally support, which is trying to you know, avoid an economic um, collapse. And I, I think people on the left are, they're being kind of cavalier with the, the effects of an economic uh, collapse. They're like, well, you know, it's just the stock market, it's just jobs. We'll put people on unemployment insurance, no big deal. But it is a big deal for people's health. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess the the thing that concerns me is not is not direct related Corona uh, deaths. It's it's just the uh, the idea of hospitals not being able to manage it in all of the all of the things that come along with people not being able to go in and get health care for having a heart issue or whatever that might happen because hospitals are overburdened and over overrun. And, um, you, you know, my, my grandpa, um, just had, uh, he was having some trouble breathing and it was a debate of like, do we take them to a hospital or uh-huh. not? And, and is it actually more harmful to take them to a hospital? And because we don't have, because we aren't in, in my, um, not super well-informed opinion, um, we aren't there yet in terms of being able to manage, say, something like uh, um, uh, trying to go the group, the the herd immunity route or something like that. Our, our hospitals just aren't in place to keep up with that. My my concern would that be that it hurts the economy more if if uh, if if uh, hospitals um, get overrun and and overburdened. Um, but, but yeah, the isolate, it's just, it's such a tricky puzzle. And then also what don't, don't you see that there's going to be some, um, debate amongst, uh, you, you know, like, well, okay. So the, the economy slows down. We don't have the revenue from, from people, um, uh, working. 
Um, so, so Medicare suffers, does it have to, I I mean, aren't people going to be like, well, let's cut from the military instead. Let's get rid of the war on drugs instead. Let's get rid of the oil subsidies that we do. Isn't there going to be a lot more, doesn't that open, open, isn't there going to be a lot more of a political debate over what gets cut and what doesn't just in terms of already you hear, you hear the general population saying like, well, we can't bail out these big companies. And then the other, uh, the other side is, those are the places that give us work. We need to keep the, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's the whole, it's the whole um, debate that happened back in, what was it, 2007 or whatever, 2008. Right. Um, well, one of the tricky things here is the federal state division, because mm-hmm. Medicare is a federal program for, for retired people mainly, but some other groups qualify. And then Medicaid is mostly a state program, and that's more for for low-income people. Mm. And states, in turn, don't spend money on defense. They don't spend, I mean, they spend a little bit on subsidies, but but not much. Um, And they also can't run deficits. So under the, for the last few years, the federal government has been running massive deficits, especially after Republicans passed a huge tax cut for the wealthy and for corporations in 2017. So the federal government was already running big deficits. It can continue to run deficits, but state and local governments cannot. Uh, in 49 out of 50 states, they are prohibited by their own state constitutions from, from running deficits. So if their revenues dry up, they have to start cutting stuff. Now, they've only done a little bit so far because they've, they've been, been relatively flush with, with a good economy going into the, into the crisis. Uh, and there, and the the, the federal um, stimulus package did include some money for state and local governments, but it's not going to be enough. And it's, there's going to be there's going to come a time very soon where you're going to start seeing state and local governments making some big cuts, unless they are propped up by the federal government. And I'm not sure that the Republicans in the Senate are going to be all that keen on on doing that. Hmm. So we're not far away from seeing some some big cuts to to state and local budgets. And, and since one of the big things states do is pay for Medicaid, so, you know, health insurance for, for the poor, um, like, well, potentially you could say like, well, not, not one dime from, from Medicaid, but one of the other big things they do is education, which is rather popular. Um, they, they do some, you know, transportation, you know, you always need repairs and, and so on. Like everything that's, that's part of the state budget competes for, for funds. And generally when you end up, cutting stuff, it's hard to avoid some amount of kind of cutting across the board, just because if you're going to try to absolutely protect Medicaid, then you really have to hit education hard because that's their single biggest expense. And, you know, is that going to be very popular? So, um, you know, as we, as we like project this, this forward, the, the longer you, you wait to have any ac- economic activity at all, the deeper the upcoming recession I mean, I guess you should say we're already in it with like, what, 30, 30 million people unemployed or, or something like that. And then the, the deeper the cuts are going to have to come to, to state budgets. And so mm-hmm. um, I think that the political alignments are, are odd because people that would normally think that those government programs are important, somehow they're just, they're not, they're not thinking this through. They're not thinking that of where we're going to end up, that the longer you wait, to reopen anything. I'm not talking about having big stadiums with 50,000 people. I'm talking about even being allowed, you know, for the, some of the stores that are currently closed, you know, hardware stores or, 
you know, uh, hairstylists or, or whatever, even, even uh, businesses of those, of those kind. Um, the longer you wait to open those up, the deeper the, the upcoming uh, budget cuts are going to be. And I, I, would, uh, I think normally people on the left would be worried about that. But because Trump has been the one pushing to open up the economy sooner, they think, well, it must be a bad idea if, if Trump's the one pushing it. Well, I think there's so many concerns that I, this is, that's, thanks for um, clarifying. I, I, I had never thought about the, um, the state level. I, I didn't know any of that. Uh, that's just how little I know about politics. But I, um, it, you know, a, a concern of mine is, uh, like, b- believe me, I would love to be doing, uh, back to doing stand-up comedy. I, I have, um, May all my my whole May was filled with like my favorite tour that I've ever put together. I was so mm-hmm. looking forward. I, I I don't just work because I need a paycheck. I work because I love what I do. It's my entire identity. Um, right. There isn't anyone out there that wants to get back to work more than I do. Um, and I I I I worry one. You, you start too soon and then we got to go on lockdown because of things being over overwhelmed. That's a, that's a concern of mine Two, say you do open, open things up again, which one restaurants and bars are going to be, and even outdoor like amphitheaters or something where maybe people could spread out and listen to music or something like that. That's going to happen before um, stand-up comedy where people need to be packed closely together. Uh, my job's the last to come back. Um, and, and, and so, so whenever things start rolling again, it's going to take probably another couple months minimum before, uh, before stand-up comedy is back. But I worry, I worry in the meantime, if you go, if you say, Hey, we, okay, you're back in business. Uh, Shane, you can do you can do your shows again, and now I have a show called Stand Up Science, and and uh, science minded people are maybe a hair worried about being in close quarters with one another, and I'm getting one tenth the number of people that uh, that normally show up to my show, and now instead of saying, "Hey, I was out of work, I need a stimulus check," now now am I going to be able to make a case and be like, yeah, Uncle Sam, normally I would have 200 people in this room, but I only had 20. So will you subsidize those, those people, those empty seats that didn't show up? And, yeah. then, and, and, then, when, and then once we start going, and, and then if it needs to shut down again, then is my, is my um, provable income based on... The, are things going to change? And then it's like, well, what was your income the last time you worked? And now my income was one tenth of what it normally was. And that's, that's the subsidies that I'm getting um, right. from that. There's, uh, I, I just have, uh, you know, uh, um, I, I, I don't, you know, I'll be fine. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to get through this. I'm, I'm figuring out alternative ways to get income, but, but that's just, I think that just, um, the one individual example from my life shows just how complicated some of these decisions are. We can open back up, but 
now what happens when you don't have customers because people are right. people are scared it's yeah no i i think that that's a great point things like restaurants um some people are saying like well maybe they could open up and just have half their normal clientele that's not going to work for restaurants most of them operate with very thin margins yeah that's in good times in good times they operate with thin margins you take away half their business that's no longer a viable proposition anymore yeah um, so that, that's not going to work for restaurants. I mean, maybe it would work for bars just because I, perhaps the overhead on, on bars that isn't so much in terms of the amount of labor you need to, to operate it. Um, but the, all of these, we have all kinds of things that were kind of calibrated for a certain amount of, um, you know, a, a business. So a comedy club that would normally have you in, is it even worth their while to open up? To, is it worth your while to, to go there? But is it worth their while to even have you if they're only getting one tenth their normal of customers? I would think it's probably not. And so they would probably rather be be closed. Maybe they get some a break on their uh, you know on, on their rent or their their lease or something. Um, yeah, yeah. So it, opening up is 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 a is a challenge. It's it's not like a flip the switch and you know hey let's just have stuff stuff come back. Yeah. So what, what do you think in terms of you, you mentioned, um, you mentioned earlier, we were talking about how that kind of the majority of, of people are on board with, um, uh, you know, understanding that, uh, you know, this virus is a threat and social distancing stuff. And, and, and maybe we're, uh, we're getting political about economic issues. Oh, this, this was the, this was the thing that you're not hearing from either side with all of the, with all of the like stimulus checks and everything else. And like, maybe if we, how should we spend this $2 trillion? No one's going, let's put all of it into science. <laughs> let's, let's put everything we can into giving every virologist and anyone possible, every kind of cutting edge resource that they could possibly use right now and the fda or what every organization get them let's put money into actually like getting getting a vaccine and more treatment for this stuff i i don't hear as much about that and i would have expected it a little more from the left but it Mm. seems it seems like we're bogged down in do we give businesses money or do we give individuals money and no one's like how about how about we fix this thing i don't know yeah. Or maybe people just assume that that's like, all well, science is just going to figure it out. And I mean, certainly there's, there's tons of people working on it. And there, there are a lot of people that used to research other things that were kind of tangentially you know, related. And they're shifting their, their research. And now they're, they're working on coronavirus like 20, 24-7. Um, so tons of people are working on uh, you know, the, the vaccine front. Um, the uh, treatment front, there's, there's hundreds of clinical trials going on right now about any plausible medication and combination of medications and, um, you know, ranging from President Trump's favorite hydroxychloroquine. Uh, and then there's other things you can mix that with. And so those are being tried out. And, and, and so I think the science community really has been activated to, to work on this. And there are challenges to doing that research, though. For one thing, you need you need patience. So you can't 
you can't just do it anywhere. You have to go to kind of where there is a hot spot where people are, 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 are coming in, you know, with, with active cases. And then you have to have enough time to, you know, see how the, the um, treatment course will, will unfold and, uh, and, and so on. And so there's been some, some small scale report like, well, Hey, some doctors have been using this medication and it seems to work, but that's essentially anecdotal evidence. We don't yet have any good randomized controlled trials for, for treatments. But I, th I think that's not for lack of trying. It's just the, the, the challenges of, of ramping up this research, you know, so quickly. The, the record for development of, uh, of, of a vaccine, which is, you know, different from a treatment, but is really better than a treatment in, in, in a lot of ways, uh, I think it's something like five years for the, uh, you know, Ebola situation from 2014 to 2019. And, uh, and there was certainly a lot of resources thrown at, thrown at that. So shrinking, I mean, all, all the public health and epidemiological experts are saying 12 to 18 months for, for a vaccine. And that's like kind of the best case scenario. That, that's expediting it. That's trying to do everything possible to get the trials up and running and get the data collected and, and get it out. And even once you have it, producing it and distributing it around the world is, is another challenge. Because mm -hmm. we have these, you know, just-in-time delivery systems and if there just aren't like empty factories laying around waiting to produce vaccine, there's a certain amount of, of factories out there that aren't normally do it for the flu and for other, other kinds of, of vaccines. And that's why people like we were talking about before, Bill Gates is wanting to step in and say, all right, I'm going to build some factories, have them, have them ready to go. But then the anti-vax people come in and say, aha, see, I thought this was just another plot to spread vaccines um, further. So it kind of all comes full circle here. Yeah. Well, the anti-vaxxers, are they, are, are they one political affiliation? I mean, are they mostly on the right? It seems like there's anti-vaxxers on, in both parties. There are those, that, that area doesn't cleave too cleanly to a political ideology. See um, this, uh, there can be unity. <laughs> <laughs> there can be morons on both sides of the fence uh, completely wrong on the same issue no the, the, i mean kind of your you know stereotypical anti-vaxxer is a pretty well-educated white woman um yeah. young mom like that that's kind of their 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 sweet spot i mean it, it radiates out out from there and so you do get you do get some of the anti-government people that are more on the right and they don't like vaccines because they think that's part of government. And then you get some um, anti-corporate people because they think, well, vaccines are part of big pharma and big pharma is bad. And so you get right, right, right. big pharma sentiment carrying over into the anti-vax hmm. um, community. So you do get kind of a weird scrambling of, of the left and the right alignments uh, on that. How, how much division is there actually out there? Because I know that... Um, the, the news definitely has a fondness for, you know, anytime there's a protest, anytime there's like a riot or any, anything like that, you, you set up, you, you know, you call the local news organization and then you, and you go, hey, uh, these 50 people are going to get together and protest this and that. And will you set the cameras up just so, so that it looks like this massive herd of people protesting and, and causing madness in the streets. but if you actually like were to drive by one of these things, it would it would look like the tiniest. Uh, like I, I remember in 
St. Louis when like the riots were breaking out and I was in St. Louis and like I drove by like the things that they're blowing up on TV and it was like it it looked like a uh it looked like a film production. It, it, it looked like, you know, you corral everyone in this, set the stage. Hey, you over there, could you put on, could you hold your sign up a little bit higher? Could you, you know, shoot that guy? Um, and, and how much of that is going on with, with some of these kind of um, protests on city halls? And, and um, uh, I, I mean, is that, is that really, I mean... It's a bigger issue when you're talking about a contagion because it doesn't take that many people um, to to spread uh, contagion. But but still, is it being blown out of proportion? I mean, the media likes conflict because conflict yeah. is drama. Drama is interesting. When 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 protests happen, they they will often get covered precisely because it's it's a quote newsworthy story. So we have seen those protests in the last several days in, in a bunch of different states, and those of that it's gotten a, a, some amount of of uh, a media coverage. And um, I think that that's that's just the way the media operates. They uh, look for stories that are going to interest people, and stories of protest often often uh, fit that profile. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm. Uh... It, I, I was raised super religious and uh, and was was rather bitter about it in my upbringing and um, and it, it, you know made made peace with uh, with with religious folks in my adult life more and was more empathetic and everything. But as uh, as I as I feel my old cynical skeptical self rising to the surface and and um, and like you said, everyone doing the "I told you so." I'm doing that with with science um, right now. I, 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 you know, saw saw myself getting very fired up around Easter with uh, with people still going to some of the evangelicals still going to these churches. But again, that's I mean, your average churchgoer is following along with the social distancing and. And doing the the remote um, viewing and everything, and and behaving <laughs> behaving like a decent, rational uh, human being. Um, but but those those couple stories on the news really stick out to you. Um, I I wanted to ask your your thoughts on some of because the what what's the book that um, that you shoot? I even have it. Um, I have it in my vehicle right now. Why didn't I grab it? What's the name name of your book again? Secular Faith. Um, and can you tell people, give people a little uh, brief overview, summary? Yeah, it, it argues that the positions that religious groups take on political issues are a lagging indicator of what's happening in the larger culture. So you might think that, the, that say, you know, leaders or or official statements of, of religious groups would, would be like directing their members of here's what we're supposed to believe. But those statements and those leaders are themselves existing in a cultural context and they're kind of shifting over. And, and I, I study this historically with several issues, um, slavery, women's issues, um, uh, divorce, abortion, um, uh, uh, homosexuality is my, is my last one. 
And I, I show that as the larger culture shifts, the, the positions of the religious groups will, will, will eventually catch up, even the more conservative ones. And, and in a Christian context, often that means reinterpreting the Bible. So, you know, if you read it, it kind of looks like it says slavery is okay, homosexuality is not. But now a lot of people read it to say the opposite, that, you know, slavery is, is not okay, but homosexuality is. And um, that's kind of the thesis of the book. Doesn't Mark Twain have some quote that's, that's like uh, something about how, how um, re- religion follows along? Or are they like the last ones to make the, the, yeah, the change could, in progress or something? Be. You know, there's, know. This, there's this fun site out there that uh, I think it's called Quote Investigator. And it, it turns out that there's a ton of p- quotes that people think it was either Mark Twain or Einstein, or Churchill, or um, um, or uh, or Yogi Berra. There's like a handful of names that people will go to, like, "Oh yeah, Mark Twain said that." And often it was something that somebody else said, but somehow it gets attributed to to Mark Twain. So I don't know if he said that particular one. He said a lot of good stuff, but he didn't say everything that's attributed to him. But if you go to Code Investigator, you can like type stuff in, and you can kind of see the the history of it. Um, one of the ones that I was really disappointed in that I, I've been saying for years, you know, you heard the phrase, um, one death is a statistic, a million deaths, is, or I'm sorry, one, uh, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic, allegedly said by Joseph Stalin. There's actually yeah. no great evidence that he said that. It, yeah. it showed up for the first time in like a newspaper column in 1947, and it has murky origins and um, so, I mean, it sounds like something he would have said, uh, but we don't really know that he actually said. I'm going to start now instead of, uh, instead of whatever regular tweet that I'm going to make, I'm just going to put quotes on it and then put Mark Twain at the end. I, I think that's been done with Einstein quite a bit as well. People attribute things to Einstein that weren't, that weren't him yeah absolutely he's he's part of that group that people think well he must have said this <laughs> he didn't really say it. so uh, so I, I am curious what your uh again as as someone i'm happy I, I it's not my intent to offend any listeners if anything i'm i'm probably uh uh probably going to be um, made the uninformed fool in this discussion, but it seems to me that um, I, I just have, you know, I'm from this like conservative family in Wisconsin, and I just couldn't believe the the difference in the conservative values that I was raised with, and then as an adult, I guess I guess it's not necessarily a political thing that that what your parents teach you when you're a kid and what happens when you're an adult are sometimes two very different messages. Um, right. and, and, and so, so I, I shouldn't, um, uh, I should be careful with playing that hypocrisy card too much. But um, it, it seems like Donald Trump is the last person the, the people that raised me would be supporting certainly seems it seems like the last uh, uh the the least jesus like person out there but yet yeah. you see you see a lot of religious people getting behind him 
and um, and then um, and then you also see uh, you, you see a lot of religious conversation popping up with people wanting to go out to these mega churches and maybe being doing something that's irresponsible to the public health and the public good. And there's maybe some potential hypocrisy there. Has, has there been anything in, in, in the last few years where you've, where you've seen any, you mentioned homosexuality um, changing a little bit, Re- religion getting, getting hip to, uh, <laughs> to, to, uh, to, the I guess the kind of popular demand for more um, equal rights. Uh, have have you seen anything even more recent that maybe you haven't studied, but that that's just kind of been on your mind in the last few years, or or as this pandemic um, has has uh, taken off? Well, certainly the amount of religious support for Donald Trump does stand out as unusual because. Um, if you go back before Trump was on the national stage, and if you asked uh, in, in surveys, how important is it to you for a leader to show private morality? Um, Christian evangelicals were the highest group for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of helps, you know, that was in the context of, uh, you know, the, the Clinton impeachment and um, just the way they had thought about political issues for a long time. Well, eventually Trump becomes the Republican nominee with a lot of evangelical support. And it's kind of hard to say that Trump is anything other than profoundly immoral in his private behavior, well known to have had three marriages, affairs with number two and number three while he was still married to number one and number two, extramarital affairs, paying off porn stars, um, bragging about sexually assaulting women on uh, the famous um, Hollywood, uh, Inside Hollywood uh, uh, tape and, and so on. So no one could, could claim that he's a model of propriety in his private behavior. So for the, for the Christian evangelicals, there's basically two choices. You either lower your support of Donald Trump or you change this prior belief you had that it's important for political leaders to have private morality. And they did the second. So they went from basically the highest group to say that private morality in a political leader is important to now one of the lowest groups to hold that belief. So it was kind of a 180 on the linkage between private morality and, and, and public leadership. Mm. And uh, that's, of course, all, all before the, the coronavirus um, uh, hits. I mean, that was all, you know, 2016 through, through 2019. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you have any, uh, have you uh, had any thoughts on, on um, how anything's shifted with the virus at all or not really? Um, on that particular dimension, I, I, I'm not sure, but I, I think there is um, an angle on this that's, that's worth watching as we go forward. And that is, I think a lot of institutions are going to be risk averse in terms of reopening. Mm-hmm. That applies to, um, you know, not only like your bars, restaurants, your, your, your events, um, but, but churches as well. So do, do you want to be the church where if, if the virus starts spreading, someone says, oh, well, you know, so-and-so had it. They're a member of the church. They spread it to this few other people there. Like, that's not a great place to be if you're a leader of that church or if you are, you know, the head of a school, a principal or, or, or something. Do you want 
you know, kids in your school to have gotten the virus and then they pass it along to someone else and they pass it along to someone else and it's traced back to, to the school. I think this is going to be a, a huge challenge for reopening anything and mm-hmm. that a lot of leaders, whether, you know, it's a, it's, we live in kind of a risk management, you know, climate where people don't want to be sued. They don't want to be blamed for things right now. The cautious thing is, is um, to stay closed. So, if you just take churches, even in the states that didn't have uh, shelter-in-place orders, so that the, the 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 states where the churches didn't have to, uh, you know, according to government decree, to t- to temporarily shut down and do all online services, the vast majority of them did it anyway, without being compelled to. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's that indicates this this pressure of. You don't, you don't want to be the vector of transmission. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, because on paper, you, you certainly don't necessarily need to have like, you know, anyone can just sit at home and read the Bible or read an algebra book or, or what have you. But, uh, but, but there's so much, there's so much more to church or school than, just the yeah. kind of what you're being taught on paper, the the scripture or the math problems right. or, or what have you. Um, for sure. I would argue that even perhaps the main dimension for a lot of people is the social aspect. Yeah. It's, it's seeing people, it's, it's, it's interacting. Um, yeah. If you keep like shake hands, touch, hug, you're basically cutting out a lot of the things, not only churches uh, encourage, but just what we do as human beings. Mm-hmm. And that you can't just replace that with an, you know, online, like, oh, hey, here was the sermon here. Let's all sing. Let's all sing songs together. Uh, Like, that's, that's just not the main part of the experience for a lot of people. Hmm. Um, All right. Last question. This one's just a little bit of an indulgence for me. We can edit it out if you want to. But say, say there, say there's a, say, say that, uh, In the little bit of news that I've seen, um, and, uh, you know, again, I'm just watching the highlights, so um, I'm seeing the bias take on things, but I've seen, um, I've seen Trump attack Fox News a couple times here, here and there, um, as he's going after, after the media which is interesting. And then I've seen Fox News, as some of the hosts speak out against Donald Trump. If, if, uh, if, if Trump and Fox News start abandoning people, what, how, are those, how are those people going to make up their mind? Where, where are they going to go? They're going to go Trump? They're going to go Fox News? It's going to be a confusing choice to make. Yeah. I, mean, I think those periods have been quickly... Um, Re-establishing the, the ties, so it hasn't been very long that when, when Trump and Fox News were out of out of alignment. Okay, well, we'll cross that bridge when we get there, then. Yeah, but I think there are some other voices on the right that are out of alignment with 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 Fox News and have been, and uh, that you know they've got their own audiences to build and the, their own relationships to establish. Hmm. Um, all right. Well, this has been uh, really informative. I, uh, I, I want to. Uh, do you do you have any do you have any advice for people as we're leaving? Just in terms of 
if people want to get um, the news, if, if I actually compared this to, I was kind of comparing the news to a drug um, the other day and yeah. talking about how like, well, if you're going to do a drug, you want to have, you want to have intention. You want to think out your dosage ahead of time because mm -hmm. you get doing it and then you just want more and, and, and you want to make sure that you have like a pure source and, 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 and that sort of thing. If, if people want to, um, if people are genuinely interested in getting the most accurate sources of information, where, where does one start? It seems, it seems like such an incredible challenge um, to even have a sense of, uh, e even, even watching, say you watch like Fox News, MSNBC, and CNN, and see what all three of those big ones have to say about the same subject. Right. I still don't think that you're left with a, a accurate picture of what's right. going because on. Those, those don't exhaust you know, the possibilities. For one thing, right. they're all in a cable news you know, environment, which itself tends to veer more toward, toward hype and, and getting people aroused. Um, as a fellow comedian to, to Bill Maher, did you happen to see his, his clip from a few days ago? On, um, it's, it's basically a criticism of, of the media for uh, not just presenting the news, but basically telling people what to think about the news. No, I, ha I didn't see that. Okay. So um, go watch and see, see what you think. He, he's, uh, you know, he, he, is, he considers himself a person of the left. He's very anti-Trump, but he's also kind of independent-minded, and he will occasionally say and do things that will offend people on the left, especially around some of your culture war type issues. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was very critical of the media for uh, even like very, you know, well-established institutions like the New York Times for having headlines that don't just report the news, but tell you what, what to think about it. Mm -hmm. um, they had, uh, uh, you know, and, and just kind of blowing things out of proportion. Hmm. And uh, anyway, watch it, see, see, see what you think about his clip. It's, uh, I guess he's trying to do some kind of weekly, you know, real time with, with Bill Maher from his, his home. And this was the most recent one from just, just a few days ago. Hmm. I, I think there is a danger in the media of right now, basically the more media you consume, the more worried you're going to get. And I, I think you're totally right in having it be part of a, um, if you just kind of absorb it during the day unconsciously, you're just going to drive yourself crazy and, and make it hard to survive. So mm -hmm. what I try to do is just, I restrict it, you know, particular times of the day. Okay. I'll, I'll go and get it here, but I have no alerts on my phone or, or every time a website says, Hey, can we, can we see alerts? I'd like, no, cause I'm the very few times when I've, I've made the mistake to say yes, then they bug me with stuff I don't want. I don't want. And so if you can control it, I think you're better off than having it just come to you. Mm -hmm. and, uh, hmm. You know, you, you want to, you want to consciously engage it rather than being pushed toward you. Hmm. Well, that's good advice. Well, thank you, Mark, for joining me. Yeah, sure thing. Sure thing, Shane. Uh, glad, glad to join up today and, and talk about the politics of the, of the coronavirus. <laughs> Compliment all of your other conversations, which are uh, I'm not going to say this is more important than those. They're, they're all important, but this happens to be the one that I can contribute to. 
Yeah, well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, and stay safe out there in Washington. And, uh, and I'll hopefully see you next time I'm through. Yeah, I, I hope that's sooner rather than later, but we don't, we don't know. All right. Take care, my friend. And thank you, I listeners, see. for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. If you enjoyed the episode, leave me a review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever app you're listening on. That would be truly quite helpful. And the next episode, we're going to be talking about vaccines. If you don't follow me on social media, if you don't follow me on Patreon, if you aren't getting the behind the scenes stuff that I'm posting on there, I've been posting, asking for questions for you guys, this is a new thing from you guys. I just started doing that in in June. I've only recorded a few episodes with the help and guidance of your questions. And it's something that I already want to implement regularly into each show. So you can do that to be a little more involved. And just in case you like checking this out on the app and aren't really interested in like say watching it on YouTube in front of your computer but you have comments YouTube is a great way to add comments so you can go to my YouTube channel Google Shane Moss YouTube find this episode add comments add suggestions for future guests throw a little thumbs up on there maybe a subscribe that would help me out tremendously. All right, those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites.